Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. This is friend of the show and self-proclaimed honorary third Ergo host, Eve Ewing. This year, I curated a series called the Black Freedom Lectures, which was dedicated to talking with renowned Black scholars to share knowledge and spark discussion on topics with an explicit Black liberation lens. We sat down with the speakers after each lecture and had some great conversations. And throughout the month of August, we're sharing those conversations with you as special episodes of Ergo. So today you're going to hear a Q&A of me interviewing one of our guests. If you want to learn more or if you're curious to see the original lecture, visit our website, blackfreedomlectures.org. If you don't want to do all that, I promise it will still be a great conversation. On this episode, you'll hear from Karee Peterson-Smith talking with me about Black and Palestinian freedom struggles and solidarities, and I hope you enjoy. Karee Peterson-Smith is the Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. He focuses on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, the war on terror, and the Palestinian freedom struggle. Karee is the co-author of the 2015 Statement of Black Solidarity with Palestine. He also researches the militarization of borders and U.S. military and political power in the Pacific. Karee has a PhD from the Clark University School of Geography, where he wrote a dissertation on U.S. military bases in Asia. And Karee is interested in Black internationalism, interrogating U.S. empire, building international support for the struggle to free Palestine, and solid with freedom struggles around the world. So, Karee, thank you so much for being here with us. How are you? Are you doing okay? It's an absolute honor to be here. I mean, to be totally honest, I'm like, um, my heart is pulled in so many different directions because I'm so grateful um, for this conversation and, um, uh, you know, have all the respect in the world for you and just grateful to share some space and time. And also, uh, my heart is heavy because what's happening in Palestine is absolutely you know, the violence is just incredibly horrific, um, unreal levels of, of colonial violence. And at the same time, amazing levels of anti-colonial resistance. Right. There is, you know, rebellion across Palestine from Palestinians, you know, all over, all over Palestine. And a big part of how Israeli colonization works is fragmenting the Palestinian population in the West Bank, in Gaza in Jerusalem, in what they call Israel, in neighboring countries where folks uh, live in refugee camps. And there is resistance across all of that right now, across all of Palestine in solidarity. So that's also amazing. So, you know, there's a lot going on. You know, um, I feel, uh, you know, the mix of that, but I, but I feel a lot of gratitude, gratitude to have this conversation, gratitude to the folks who organize this, gratitude for the people tuning in and I especially want to um, just appreciate the Palestinian folks tuning in and like recognize like, you know, what's on your heart um, and know that, you know, my heart is, is on you and I'm grateful to get to share this space together. Thank you so much. And I, I think that what you said about wherever there is pain, wherever there is harm, there's also resistance, right? And there's also struggle. And I think that's why I feel so excited to have this conversation with you and grateful because I think that um, one of the things I know we're going to talk about this evening is how um, people on the side of oppression get to frame the terms of the conversation. Mm. And so how can we reframe the conversation around the things that we are able to do for one another, right? So 
Um, this is a space where we want to honor lots of questions that we got. And we got a lot of questions through email and through social media that are at many different levels of prior knowledge and understanding. I want to say thanks to everyone who submitted a question and thank you for being down to kind of meet us where we are. So if some people are watching this and they're like, oh, these questions are so basic, or if other people are like, oh, this is really complicated, we're going to try to meet everybody where they are. And, and so thank you for that. So to start, um, obviously, you cannot give us the entire history of the region and the time that we have. And also later in the conversation, we're going to do some shout outs of readings and resources where people can go if they want to learn more in depth. But I think one of the first things we hear from many people, especially many Black people, is I feel like I don't understand the history and the context of the situation. And so I feel like I can't intelligently speak up, especially because we live in a very, we're in a very um, combative social context, right? So people are afraid to say something and then have somebody come out at them in an argumentative way and feel like they can't stick up for their principles, right? So what would you tell those people and, and where should our understanding begin? I'm not asking you to give us a you know crash course of 70 years of history, but help us ground us to begin where, where, where our understanding should begin in this conversation. Yeah, I so appreciate that question. And I want to, I want to just begin my answer with another gratitude and say, well, first an acknowledgement that, you know, I am, I am grateful to get to speak to, to, you know, to give my response to that question. I'm aware um, that I am talking about history of Palestinian people. That is not, you know, I'm not Palestinian, you know what I mean? Um, uh, so I want to acknowledge that. And I want to just appreciate, honestly, everything that I know about Palestine I've learned from Palestinians. So just, you know, express gratitude for that. Um, and so this question of like, you know, and I think it comes in many forms. I think this is so complicated. I heard this is too complicated. How can I take a stand? I don't know enough. And, you know, first of all, like I, I, I hear that, you know, I, I really appreciate that because particularly in the United States, and I think it's it's important to kind of locate those of, those of us who live in this place to locate that because this is actually a different conversation around the world. And in this place called the United States, it's particularly challenging, I think, because there's a particular effort to obscure what is happening. There's a particular effort um, to make you feel like you don't understand, especially for those of us who um, are not part of, uh, you know, Palestinian or um, Jewish or Arab, you know, uh, communities, we're told this has nothing to do with you. You stay out of this. And so I really, I really hear you. Now that, that said, you know, folks who feel like that are really, um, well, 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 one is we're, we're compelled to take a stand and that's where I want to get to, um, in, in one second, but first is to say, it's also really for, or we're, we're, we're quite lucky because I don't know if there has ever been more accessible knowledge about what is going on. Never, you know, it is the resources available to us, you know, primarily cracked by Palestinian folks themselves are abundant. So that is something to be celebrated. And, you know, if you, if you recognize that you need to learn more about this issue, you're in luck because there's a lot of other, uh, a lot of tools available to us. Um, but, you know, so, so that said, um, we look at what's actually happening in Palestine. You know, we look at, um, you know, at, at the moment, the conversation, the focus is really, um, it, it's on Gaza in particular. Um, it is, uh, and again, you know, the U.S. media, U.S. government, certainly the Israeli government media are focusing on rockets coming from Gaza. And what we hear about the other side is Israeli bombing of Gaza. We know that, you know, uh, those are not two equal sides. You know, um, there is a military power that has an air force, an army and a navy and controls the land and the, the sea and the air. And the other does not. The other is largely defenseless, um, you know, group of people confined in Gaza. Um, so folks will know that, will see that and, and recognize even with the kind of spin, even with the, the framing that the media give of both sides, even with the framing that the Biden administration, U.S. officials give of Israel has a right to defend itself. If you just look at what's happening, you know, you know, I mean, as of now, you know, last I heard 200 people have been killed in Gaza, dozens of children. So, you know, what we're looking at is ethnic cleansing. Um, 
And I think it's really important to say that it's important to talk about what's happening in Gaza, but this, this goes so far beyond Gaza. This didn't, this round of violence and resistance didn't start in Gaza. It started in Jerusalem, okay? Um, and where people are being forcibly, Palestinians are being forcibly displaced by the Israeli state and by Jewish settlers. Um, and, you know, the weeks leading up to this and right now, across what they call Israel, uh, there are Israeli police and Israeli uh, Jewish settlers attacking Palestinians in their homes, on the streets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So folks here look at that and see that. And you, you know, you know enough, you know enough to stand with the people who are being attacked. Do you have more to learn? Of course you do. Of course, we all have more. We always have more to learn. Of course, the, you know, we, we always have to expand and deepen our knowledge. But you really do. You, you know enough to recognize that this is ethnic cleansing. The last thing I'll say is I really encourage folks to go to a rally. One thing there, you know, there was an amazing round of rallies last week. Um, another happened uh, over the weekend. Um, and tomorrow actually is uh, in Palestine, there is a, a general strike by Palestinians that's been called across Palestine, which is amazing, an amazing act of resistance. And there's international solidarity all around the world. So there might be a rally in your city, go to it. Because, and and, and I, I, for those who say, but I don't know enough, I understand, but go to it because going to a rally, it's not only an expression of solidarity with Palestinians, it is also a context for learning. You will hear Palestinians talk about their history. You will hear them talk about what is happening to them and their families now. You might see people come out to rep Israel and you'll, and you'll, you'll hear, you know what I mean? You'll, you'll see that exchange, that will be an education. So go. Go engage. Um, you already know enough, but there, there's a lot of context to engage further. Yeah. Oh, there's so much you just said that I want us to build on. But one thing I want to note for folks is, um, as you mentioned, there there is this general strike happening tomorrow, and a lot of people here and in other parts of the world are um, doing actions in solidarity. And so we'll share some of those on our social media, and um, in a second, maybe drop some of them in the chat as well if people want to learn more. And we'll also be sharing other learning and resources. But one of the thing I'm hearing, one of the things I'm hearing you say is that this idea of you don't know enough is a strategic deployment that is intended to silence people and to move them away from what they know in their heart, what they know from, you know, basic childhood morals and, and upbringing. And I was wondering if you could talk about the specific relationship between the two states currently known as the United States and Israel and why specifically in the U.S. context, we live in a media and political environment that that reinforces that idea that we don't know enough. So can you talk about that relationship, both in terms of communications and also maybe finances? Absolutely. This is an extremely important question, especially right now that the Biden administration um, is positioning itself as this kind of neutral actor, saying that we have sent this envoy to the region uh, who is going to negotiate between Israel and the Palestinians and try to reach some kind of understanding. And the idea is that the United States can play this kind of this, the role of the honest broker, when in fact, the United States is thoroughly on one side, thoroughly on one side, on the side of Israel. Um, the United States gives Israel um, a minimum of $3 billion a year um, in military aid that subsidizes Israeli military, Israeli militarization, but really all of Israeli society and the whole project of colonizing that land, of colonizing Palestinian land. And can um, I pause you on that point, Kareem? Because also this happens to be something that you study globally. So how does that compare to the kinds of military aid or other types of humanitarian aid? How does that compare to where we're spending elsewhere in the world? You know, again, such an important question because look, it's it's extremely important to engage with the particulars of the situation of Palestine, of Israel, of the U.S. relations, you know, um, with with, with uh, these this, with the, the particular project of Israel, and yet, you know, this is in a context we should not see the U.S.-Israel relationship in isolation of a broader context of what I would argue is the U.S. empire. You know, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. That's not accidental. <laughs> you know, there's this kind of idea that. You know, the U.S. kind of aw shucks its way. You yeah, know. we worked the hardest. Yeah, we just... worked really hard and just kind yeah, of emerged, 
you know, as a superpower. And that's not true. There's some, you know, the, the, the U.S. Um, uh, has achieved and maintains that status through an exercise of power, um, of military power, of political power, of economic power. Um, and so there's a whole lot of uh, states in the world that the U.S. gives military aid to. And actually the Middle East and, and Central Asia are, you know, major sites of, of U.S. military aid. And so in, in many ways, there, there's a number of things that are unique to the U.S. relationship with Israel. But there's a number of ways in which Israel is actually not exceptional. I mean, if you look at the Middle East, you look at, um, you know, Egypt for many years got $2 billion, you know, $1 to $2 billion a year in, in, in military aid. Saudi Arabia gets tremendous uh, military aid and, and weaponry from the United States um, and political support as it carries out its horrendous um, acts of violence in Yemen and elsewhere. Um, the United Arab Emirates, the same thing. Um, you know, I could go down a line of the various states in, in the, the region uh, that, that are on the U.S. payroll and that are U.S. allies. So there's a context here um, where the U.S. uses these relationships uh, as part of uh, what they say promoting its interests. But it's really about ma making sure that there's a certain kind of order that the United States is at the head of. It's the kind of order that the United States um, wants. And so, you know, we know that the U.S. invades places and, you know, the U.S. does all kinds of things directly, but no empire acts alone. <laughs> um, and it it always has allies and Israel is a key ally. And so that because of that relationship, which for uh, decades has been a bi bipartisan support, uncontroversial among the U.S. political class in terms of U.S. support for Israel, that's starting to change, which is incredibly significant, um, but it's just starting, right? Uh, because of that, because there's such unity in, uh, you know, in the U.S. political class and the U.S. elite, it means that the U.S. media also, you know, it, is largely unified in terms of a certain outlook that, you know, whether you're listening, whether you're watching CNN or reading New York Times or listening to NPR, you're going to hear, you're going to hear some of the same arguments actually. And so all, and, and that, you know, there's what we learn in school. What I learned in school, when I learned in elementary school was that, you know, Israel was a land without a people for a people without a land. You know, uh, that's a, a, a classic Zionist phrase that was in my my social studies textbook in sixth grade. You know, none of that is accidental. And it, it makes it very challenging, you know, to live in, in this place and just look at it because um, you know what you're seeing with your own eyes. And then you're hearing that it's something different, that it's two sides and it's a cycle of violence and so on. And that's not the situation. Now, I think that for those of us, and we're going to also talk about Black people in global context in a second, but for those of us living in, in this country, in this nation state, um, I think that there's a way that some Black people are starting to be like, okay, I see things that I see are wrong happening elsewhere in the world. And I'm going to care about that and try to learn more because I'm a compassionate human being who has empathy for what's happening elsewhere. However, uh, there are also a deep set of political, financial, corporate interests, entities that span uh, these two nation states so that it's not a coincidence that, for example, you see an image like we see in Ferguson or Baltimore or Chicago, where there are people, long oppressed people rising up against a state power and what we see in Palestine, long oppressed people rising up against a state power. And those relationships are actually deeper than we think. And so could you talk a little bit about the material interests specifically as it pertains to anti-Black violence in the United States um, and we, and, and the, the violence that we see happening um, in Gaza? Right. Absolutely. You know, and I, um, you know, I appreciate that question and I appreciate you locating the question of black politics and relations within this place called the United States, right? We know, you know, and, and, and certainly um, folks who are, who are part of been engaging with your lecture series know that black, you know, black is an expansive category that extends all around the world. There are black people everywhere. And there are all kinds truly of- Truly everywhere. Truly really, everywhere. Yes. Like for real, every single where. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it means that there are innumerable relations of Black people in the, the global Black community to the question of pal the Palestinian freedom struggle and to Israeli violence. Um, so 
I want to acknowledge that. I'm going to speak to what I know the most about, which is about, um, you know, Black America and um, our relationship uh, historically to this question. And I'll say, too, it's important to acknowledge that there is a relationship, because as I I said earlier, one thing that we are often told in this country, um, you know, again, if it's not your business. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with you. And the Mm -hmm. fact is, um, you know, Israel and the U.S. have made it our business because they, they, you know, they collaborate all the time. They, they, they recognize, you know, the U.S., which is a, a, a colonial settler state and an imperial power, looks at Israel, which is a colonial settler state and, and was uh, from the start, and says, okay, well, we've got something in common and we should compare notes. We should help each other out. And that, that, that relationship is, is, extensive. Um, it is dynamic. And so it involves not only the billions of dollars uh, that, in terms of military aid that, that, that the U.S. gives to Israel, the U.S. weapons that it sells to Israel. You know, these are not, these Israeli planes are American planes. They're, they're F-16s. They're, they're made here. The bombs they're dropping are American bombs, right? Um, so there's that. But then, the, the, you know, it's not, it's not a one-sided relationship. Um, uh, Israeli, or I'm sorry, American police, police uh, departments in the United States train with Israel. And this isn't like a marginal phenomenon. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that every major police department in this country and a lot of police departments in small cities and all kinds of police departments have relations with, with Israel. Um, I, I found out I, I, I'm, I'm located uh, here in, in Boston um, on, on Massachusetts and Wampanoag land. Um, and there are a lot of college campuses here. There are campus police that train with Israel. Uh, the MBTA, which is the transit authority here, the transit police train with Israel. So, so this is a very extensive situation. And there are Israeli weapons that uh, get deployed on the streets here uh, in, in uh, the city of St. Louis uh, around the time of the Ferguson uprising bought something called a skunk truck which is an Israeli weapon. It's a truck that sprays this putrid uh, liquid uh, on people resisting in protest as a, as, a, as a crowd control measure. You know, you can't wash off this, this liquid. It stays on you for days. Well, this is an Israeli weapon that was developed against Palestinians. And now this American police department uh, bought it and used it. So, so, you know, in so many ways, our oppressions are linked, but our resistances are also linked. And there is an incredible rich history uh, of Black Palestine solidarity um, you know, that, that goes way back. Uh, one of the more storied times is in the 1960s, you know, the, the last time, um, 60s and 70s, the last time of great kind of anti-colonial revolt um, and decolonization. And uh, organizations, Black American organizations here, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, um, organizations like the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, organizations like um, the Revolutionary Union Movement in Detroit, uh, you know, all had relations with the Palestinians, um, with Palestinians in Palestine, in some cases with Palestinians here. Uh, That is a very rich uh, history. And and it's one that continues to this day. Uh, You know, the the Ferguson uprising in in 2014 uh, was this moment that kind of was its own and also called back to histories of resistance. It was a time that 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 summer 2014, you know, remember it was the year that Eric Garner was murdered in New York City. Mike Brown is murdered in Ferguson. And then there's the Ferguson uprising. In that same summer, Israel launched its latest assault on Gaza. Um, and, uh, you know, there was solidarity from Palestine with the Ferguson uprising. You know, you, you mentioned uh, in the introduction that I, I co-authored with my comrade, shout out to Christian Davis Bailey, um, you know, an amazing uh, militant black, uh, you know, fighter for Palestine and for, for freedom. Uh, we, we co-authored this statement of black solidarity with Palestine, but we were inspired by not one, but two statements from Palestine in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising. You know, there were Palestinians on Twitter in Palestine who said, you know, to our rebel comrades in Ferguson, we see you dealing with tear gas. Here's how he, here's how we deal with it, right? So it was this moment. And um, now we're in another moment. I mean, it really, it really breaks my heart to think like what, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there, right? We just got off the, the, the Derek Chauvin trial, right? you know, a whole round of police murders of black folks. And then once again, 
there is this massive assault in Palestine by Israel. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that we are having a white nationalist moment in this country right. where the police are on the rampage and that there is um, you know, a Jewish nationalist moment in Palestine where the police are on the rampage. Uh, that, that's not coincidental. So no, I, I want to yeah. up. Well, I want to uplift two things you said there that I think are really important yes. to just drive home. Yeah. One is that it is not an exaggeration to say that if you see footage of black people getting shot by the police, getting tear gassed by the police, that that they are literally using technologies Right. And by technologies, I mean both material items. Right. But also techno ways of being that yes. are learned and borrowed from another settler state. Right. Yes. And so I think that's really important. Like this is this is a material relationship. This is not just like ethical solidarity or right. principled solidarity is a material relationship. And then the other thing that I think you're saying that is so powerful is. We can do that too, right? Yeah, we can, right. we can, yes. we have the same ability to learn from each other and to learn tactically, um, politically, emotionally from one another. And I think that all of this, you know, you and I, and we could have a whole different conversation about settler colonialism. And for those who aren't familiar with that term, um, when we say settler state or settler colonialism, what we mean is that there are people who have come to a place and displaced the, the original inhabitants of that place and said, we now get to build an empire here. This is our country. And we, we dictate the terms of, of what that means. And so when we say the U.S. is a settler state, we mean that European people came here, saw indigenous people on the land, said they don't count. And this is ours now. And we get to define what a country is. The same right. thing happens in Australia. The same thing happens in, in Israel. So for those who aren't familiar with that term, that's what we mean by that. But I think both of us in the language we use are intentionally challenging um, uh, the very notion of borders. And that maybe if we don't even think about these places as being different places, right, but actually as uh, a one place, then we then it helps us to um, understand the ways that these systems are learning from each other and the ways that we can also learn from each other. So I just want to uplift that as, a, to, to me, a very important takeaway from what you said. Um, so, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about intertwined struggles between Black people in the United States and Palestinians, both in Palestine and in diaspora across the world. And as you said, there are infinite ways to be Black, right? There are multitudinous ways to be Black. And I think that one thing that often gets sidelined in these conversations is that there are also Black Palestinians, there are Afro-Palestinians living in Gaza, living around the world, right? And so could you talk a little bit, knowing that you yourself are, are this is not your identity, right? But right. from a from a perspective of an accomplice, can you talk a little bit about Black Palestinians and some of the, the intersectional experiences that, um, that in ways that they might be uniquely vulnerable in some of these situations? Yeah, right on. And, you know, thank you for uh, thank you for the question, which is really important. And I acknowledge, right, I'm not I'm not Afro-Palestinian. I'm not black Palestinian. Um, and I am really in the process of learning more and engaging with these communities. Uh, so I will share what I know. But also, again, there are these um, really amazing resources uh, for, for us to um, to learn more. So one thing is there are I mean, if you look at just like Palestine's location, right? Um, it is at a crossroads uh, of, of various places and groups of people, right? And so because of histories of this place itself, there are Afro-Palestinians, like there are people of African descent who are Palestinians, who are indigenous to uh, this place called Palestine, to, to Palestine. Um, and so there's that. There are also, again, because people migrate, um, you know, all around the world because blackness is expansive. Um, there are black Palestinians all over the world. There are, uh, you know, black Palestinians uh, in, in this place um, called North America uh, and, and so on. So there are many different communities and different kind, different ways of being um, Afro-Palestinian and, and, and black Palestinian. And um, just, I want to shout out a couple of, um, of resources. Uh, one is there's this amazing organization called Existences Resistance. Um, highly recommend to engage with their work, follow them. Um, you know, uh, Shout out to, to Nancy Mansour, who, um, who who plays a key role in running uh, that organization and who uh, guided me, who's a Palestinian, who guided me on my, when I, when I was really privileged enough to go to Palestine, to go to Gaza, um, you know, Nancy, Nancy guided me in our delegation. 
And, um, you know, Nancy and Existence's Resistance have worked, have, have paid particular attention to building relations between the Afro-Palestinian community in Palestine and, and people all around the world, the solidarity struggles around the world um, uh, and, and in this place in particular. So uh, that is an organization that is very deep in that work of building and maintaining those relations um, and a resource in terms of learning more. Uh, and then I also, you know, so Existence is Resistance actually have collaborated with Mark Lamont Hill, you know, amazing, uh, the amazing scholar um, uh, who is, is, again, deeply engaged with the question of Palestine solidarity to produce this film called Black in the Holy Land. Um, which which speaks to and I think that's uh, online. I'm going to drop the link if we if I have our team drop it because uh, I, I think it's online, is it not? Or he's been working on this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So the, I, I found I know where the trailer is. Let me not I, put Mark on the spot if it's not done. Yeah, I know, I know, I, know, I, know. I don't want to. You know, so kind of push I, I, front street, but we'll we'll share the trailer. Exactly, exactly. Um, so this this yeah, check out uh, this film as a resource. And so um, so so there's a couple of resources I, I, I want to acknowledge too. Since we're talking about Black people in Palestine, you know, um, there are Afro-Palestinians, there are Black Palestinians. It's also worth acknowledging there are Black Jewish folks, you know, they're Black Jewish, again, you know, in the, 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 the expansive family of Blackness, you know, we have Jewish folks, right? And that includes Black Jewish folks, you know, who are Israeli, you know, uh, and, and they're in, in particular, uh, the kind of primary Black Jewish Israeli population is folks of Ethiopian descent um, uh, who live as Israelis, who uh, you know are in the, the the Israeli military and so on, um, who are part who, who as Jewish folks in a Jewish state, you know, so called, are 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 enlisted in a, in a settlement project, are part of a settlement project, and also as Black folks in that settlement project, which is racist, which is a white supremacist project. It isn't, it isn't just Jewish supremacists it, because the Jewish state, it's a white supremacist project. You know, these it, European Jewish Zionists, you know, were the founders of this project um, and their kind of supremacy, that the supremacy of that grouping in particular remains central to the Israeli state. And so there are black Jewish Israelis who experience marginalization as black people in ser like serious, you know, serious marginalization, police harassment and violence, um, et cetera, and also participate in the colonization of Palestinian land. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, that the different permutations of blackness and of, of black population, there's black population, you know, on, on different sides of this colonizing uh, situation an anti-colonial situation. And it sounds like another way in which it's important for us to be in conversation across borders because Black people in the United States, Black people in France, Black people in Brazil, right? Black people all over the world can relate to the experience of being in a place through complicated webs of colonization, chattel slavery, however it is that we got where we got in that particular situation. And what are the ways in which you are conscripted into the, the project of the nation state, whether or not you, you don't get to choose, right? We don't get to choose. Right. But what are the ways in which we choose to resist that conscription and to, to push against it and move through it? So um, I really appreciate that. And um, we will shout out uh, Black in the Holy Land um, and a couple of other resources. Um, and also um, Mark uh, co-authored a, a book that, that I definitely want to recommend called Except for Palestine, um, which you mentioned earlier that until very recently, this was the, the, the thing that, you know, people on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans were all on the same page. And that until very recently, like by recently, I mean like this month, right. Right? Literally. <laughs> like literally right now, um, you know, if you're a quote unquote progressive, it's like, except for this one matter. So um so speaking of Democrats, uh, uh -huh. one of the questions we got from a couple of people was how the Obama administration specifically played a role in where we find ourselves politically today, uh, what Barack Obama did, didn't do. And um, yeah, just talk talk about the Obama administration and, and its legacy here. Yeah, um, man. Um, 
Well, you know, the, the Obama administration was, uh, it was an administration of, it was a presidential administration of the United States, which is an imperial power. Um, you mean it wasn't just like a Black Boy Joy <laughs> right. festival of yeah. happiness and good times? You no, know, yeah, sometimes he had a, you know, had a kick in his step or whatever, but he, you know, one thing just to say, I mean, Obama um, actually signed, he presided over the biggest um aid package to Israel in U.S. history. So, you know, the Obama administration was was not only not a neutral or progressive um, administration, really on, uh, I mean, we can, we, can, we can have a whole other conversation about evaluating the Obama, the Obama years, but when it comes to U.S. empire, it was really, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, Obama escalated the war on terror, he expanded it. Um, but when it comes to support for Israel in particular, um, the Obama administration was absolutely kind of enthusiastically com- complicit uh, in, in Israeli violence, not only um, in terms of its horrendous abuses of the Palestinians and ongoing, you know, dispossession and displacement and violence against Palestinian folks, but all sorts of, of, of other things that, that Israel does. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's wild because Actually, you know, the Obama, the kind of signature foreign policy initiative of the Obama administration was uh, what they call the Iran nuclear deal, which is this, this a deal where, um, you know, in exchange for, for submitting to an incredible amount of regulation of its nuclear program, um, the idea being that Iran could never develop a nuclear weapon, uh, that the United States would ease the horrendous sanctions that it has carried out against Iran for decades. Um, now, uh, that, 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 that deal has a whole history. It was, you know, Trump did a lot of uh, damage to it, you know, escalated the violence against Iran. Um, at the moment, it's being kind of renegotiated and we'll see its outcome. But actually, when the deal was negotiated during the Obama administration, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, came to the United States and addressed a joint session of Congress to say why this deal was not okay. Because Israel um, did not want any kind of, uh, you know, agreement between, between uh, the U.S. and Iran. Um, you know, this, and this isn't a peace agreement, to, to be clear. This, 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 this um, you know, the idea is to offer some relief to Iranians, but it absolutely uh, reiterates the kind of power relationship of domination, you know, that the U.S. Um, exerts toward Iran, you know, this, and, and yet Netanyahu said, no, this, even that is not okay. Um, and uh, so anyway, whatever, that deal went forward. But my, my point is, you know, the Obama administration let that happen and, and, and then gave Israel all this, this, this weapons package, this aid, this aid package. Um, so yes, the Obama, the Obama administration has tremendous complicity as, as, you know, whatever various uh, U.S. presidents have in terms of Israeli uh, violence toward Palestinians and others. Now, what one of the questions that, you know, some people are one answer of like, well, why why did Barack Obama do these things is because he was a U.S. president. And that's what the that's the job of the presidency, right, is to oversee this empire. I think that I'm looking at the the chat right now, and I think that some people are struggling with like but why Israel? Like, why is it this one country? Like, do they have, do they have like selfies, they have incriminating photos? Like what is it about this particular nation state that, um, that we have what, what appears to be, as you pointed out, in some ways is not an exceptional relationship, but in other ways is. And, you know, to me, one potential answer of this is, uh, the similarities, right. The, the joint intertwined interests of these two settler states. Um, but is it, is it more than that? Or is it really just that, like, when we look into the mirror of Israel, we, we see ourselves as a state. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what is the real deal? Does Israel it's, know things Do they have embarrassing pictures of every U S <laughs> president, you know, when they were kids, like what, what really happened? Right. It's, it's such a good question. Um, and, you know, just just to parse out the the answers because there is this there is this notion that is is mobilized, particularly when we talk about the Democratic Party, because like I said, it's a bipartisan support, right? And so, particularly the Democratic Party support for Israel and the kind of liberal American support for Israel is framed in terms of um, well, 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 I should say both. You know, the 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 right wing and and liberals you know, talk, embrace this notion that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, 
you know, the U.S. is the world's greatest democracy. <laughs> if you, you, by the way, you know that that's not true. You know that, you know, the U.S. is not <laughs> democracy. So, so you also know that the other thing that is you're being democracy is not true. The U.S., are you telling me that a country where they're currently offering people literally a lottery in order to access life-saving vaccines, right. uh, that, that that's not the greatest democracy in the world? Wow. I'm glad, I'm glad you're sitting down, Eve. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, um, so, you know, right. So, um, so, right. Uh, so, so that they, they, they both, you know, Republicans and Democrats say that, but, but Democrats in particular frame support for Israel in terms of um, a response to anti-Semitism too, right? Like Jewish folks are, are uh, marginalized all around the world. And um, <clears throat> this notion, and certainly again, going to my elementary school textbook, you know, the, the kind of story that after the Holocaust, you know, this unspeakably horrific crime in, in, in world history in, in Europe, um, that, you know, in recognition of the need to keep Jewish folks safe, the U S is committed to this state. Now it's, it's simply not true. And, and there's a number of reasons why it's not true. A key one being what the U S actually did during the Holocaust, which is boats of Jewish refugees fled from Europe to emigrate to the United States and the U.S. turned them away, actually. Um, you know, the U.S. knew about uh, the, the Holocaust uh, before it did anything about it. So, so the notion that the U.S. has been, you know, on the side of the world Jewish population, and this is in keeping with that, it's simply false. It's absolutely false. So, um, so if it isn't that, you know, what is it? I think that what you said about this notion of a kind of identification is extremely important, but identification of what, right? It's, 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 you know, again, one imperial power, much larger, you know, imperial superpower identifying with another colonial uh, and imperial power, um, but they're colonial and imperial powers. And what that means is they want control and domination of, uh, you know, the world economy to make it safe for U.S. corporations and U.S. power. Um, and so there was a recognition on the part of the, the most powerful countries in the world after, you know, in, in the mid-20th century, a recognition of the, the Middle East uh, as this, what, what, what they came to see as a strategic place, you know, we under, I understand it as a, it's a place, it's a place where people live, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> this place of richness and culture and, and all kinds of societies, right? Um, but for the United States, for Britain, you know, for France, for, for all of these, these, these imperial powers, they said, this is a strategic place because this is the location of the world's oil reserves. And therefore we will invest in, in, you know, our relations and our presences in this place in particular. Uh, and so, you know, the kind of Western colonization, and again, Western colonization of, of the Middle East predates, um, you know, predates the 20th century, but, but, but you know, the question of a petroleum-based economy in particular um, was extremely important. And again, it, it not even, not even a, in terms of, when we talk about the United States, not even in terms of the U.S. population's consumption of oil, but rather the world, you know, the, the recognition was that much of the world is getting their oil from the Middle East. And therefore, who is in power in the Middle East has tremendous power in the world. So that's why there's all of these relationships that the U.S. maintains in that region with various states. But Israel in particular, from the start, as a settler state, as, as a state that, as you so you know, beautifully and brilliantly um, uh, explained, would involve people coming from elsewhere as settlers, you know, a non-Indigenous population to settle the land, that, that would involve and require support from imperial powers. And from the start of the Zionist movement, before Israel was even established as a state, there was a recognition of the people who envisioned the state that we're going to need the most powerful states in the world support us. Um, and so the relationship is one of uh, a certain convergence of, of interest. Israel says, you know, we, we, we need backing uh, to settle this place and to uh, have this incredibly powerful military uh, and so on. And the United States says, we want an absolutely loyal state in the Middle East um, where we don't have to worry about things like uh, you know, the population, you know, there have been, there have been times in, in uh, a state like Egypt, which at the moment is, is, is a U.S. ally, but Egypt was also a center for Arab nationalism, where people rose up with a population said, 
we want some, we want a different future than the Western colonial future. Well, Israel, they're less concerned with that because this is a settler population um, that, that is very self-consciously involved in a colonizing project. And so this is of tremendous benefit to the United States. You know, what's so, what's important to me is I think you just flipped my understanding of the question, which is that we might say, what is so unique about the relationship between the United States and Israel? Or we might flip that and say, what can the relationship between the United States and Israel illustrate for us about the history of U.S. empire and domination around the world? Because if we look in Latin America, if we look in Asia, if we look in Africa, probably somewhere on the low in Antarctica, who knows? I just don't know about it yet, right? The United States, the, the entire history of this country has always been interested in maintaining state power that benefits, maintaining whether, whether that requires assassinating people or whatever has to be done, right? Maintaining state power that, that benefits its own economic and political interests. And so I think it's very illuminating to, to, to recognize that that is actually, you know, a, a pattern. And the other thing that's so interesting is, you know, you brought up um, a little bit what an, an issue that I know a lot of people are struggling with, which is the idea of being accused of anti-Semitism right. if you criticize Israel, right? Because um, of this in, horrific and uh, and genocidal, you know, a, a, a humanitarian crises that Jewish people around the world have have faced, right? But but what you're also pointing out is that faith and state don't have to be the same thing, right? And so, uh, being a practitioner of a faith, being a, a member of a culture, doesn't mean you necessarily have to be conscripted in participating in an exercise of state power that has nothing to do with that, right? That has nothing to do with with your your faith practices or the histories of your of your people, and so, you know, I really appreciate that. And that brings us to um, a point of resistance that a lot of people want to know about. So um, many people may have heard of, of BDS, which stands mm -hmm. for Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions, or Divestment and Sanctions. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the BDS movement? And specifically, we were asked by some people, um, we were asked, what are some accessible ways to practice BDS, um, depending on you know where you may be in the world or your class background? And somebody asked as an individual question, like, how can I, as a person, stop funding Israel? So just tell us a little bit about BDS and how people can participate in it and what that means. Right. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, if I can say just one thing, as, as, I, as I get into that question, I want to say one thing about the question of anti-Semitism and, and the question of, you know, uh, the solidarity that I want to argue for that we need, you know, with our Jewish relatives who are facing, you know, when we talk about the rod, a white nationalist moment, you know, that historically and today means anti-Semitism in this country and, and around the world. But it's certainly to speak about this country. Right. And so we need and to we saw. Sorry, but we saw, you know, 45 as this white supremacist president supporting Israel abroad and then exactly. wild, wildly anti-Semitic, right. wildly anti-Semitic yes. in the U.S. So it doesn't Absolutely. the pieces yes. don't add up. Right on. And there's a lot to say about that. One thing I just want to shout out. And again, you know, going back to my earlier comment about how. If you're new to solidarity with Palestine, you know, I, I, there, I mean, it, it's always time to be in solidarity with Palestine. But right now we have not only all these resources that have been crafted by Palestinian folks, you know, we also have probably the, the greatest, you know, number, uh, you know, the greatest number, amount in history uh, of, of this country of Jewish folks who are part of the Palestine solidarity movement. Right. So shout out to Jewish Voice for Peace, you know, among several, there are several Jewish organizations in this country, including if not now, you know, that 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 organize, you know, um, uh, against Israeli colonization um, uh, and, and, you know, JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace in particular, you know, really uh, uh, working solidarity with Palestinians. So that is important to say. And JVP is involved uh, along with a host of, of other organizations in this country and around the world in boy, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, kind of project. And so the idea uh, is really that, you know, again, Israel is, is, um, is carrying out this project against the Palestinian people, but it doesn't act alone. Um, it involves not only the military and political support of countries like the United States and, and other powerful states in the world, but also the, the economic support. Um, uh, and Israeli companies uh, have a certain place in the world economy. Um, in many ways, uh, again, thinking about 
the kind of privileged relationship of the U.S. and Israel, it means that there are there's a privileged kind of um, uh, access that Israeli corporations have to the U.S. economy. Again, a lot of that, you know, is about the control of the, the, the kind of colonial control of people. There's this, this Israeli company called Elbit Systems, um, which is, um, you know, they, 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 they work in military technologies. And the U.S. has employed Elbit Systems in its... Uh, it's militarization of the, the southern border uh, with, with Mexico, right? So this is what that collaboration um, uh, looks like. And it means that there are all sorts of sectors of U.S. society that are invested in the Israeli economy and in Israeli society. Um, and so that means, you know, I, again, I live here in Massachusetts. It means that there are like delegations of elected officials in Massachusetts to Israel to talk about how can we strengthen ties with the Israeli economy. It means that universities um, across this country are invested uh, in Israel and so on. So BDS, you, you know, first of all, they take inspiration um, from other boycott uh, uh, movements uh, throughout history, including the, the movement to, to boycott South African apartheid, um, including the boycott movements as part of the civil rights movement here in the black freedom struggle uh, in, in this place called the United States. Um, and it is this accessible, nonviolent thing that anybody can access because, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the um, relations with the Israeli economy and society are so ubiquitous. So, uh, so if you're on a college campus in particular, if, if you don't know already, it's worth researching in what ways is my campus invested in Israeli apartheid. Um, and many, uh, I want to shout out another organization, Students for Justice in Palestine, um, which has chapters across the country, have, have done that kind of research and has found have found out that that kind of investment. And then the campaign to say we need to divest actually um, uh, from from um, from Israel. There's all kinds of companies, um, uh, you know, in Boston at the moment. There's a campaign against the company Puma, um, which which has uh, some relations with Israel. first first New Balance and now Puma. Boston is having a hard time with. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got we got work to do. We got work to right. do. But you know, they support like Israeli um, uh, sports teams, and and therefore are part of normalizing Israeli apartheid, right? And so there's a campaign um, against that. So uh, honestly, you know, you can you can really um, kind of like just run a search, run a web search for BDS and your location. You know, if you have a retirement fund, a lot of retirement funds are invested in Israel. Like one way or another. Israeli apartheid finds us so we can find our, our, our entry point uh, into resisting it and joining the BDS movement. And, you know, I think that there's a couple things about that that are that, again, I want to uplift and co-sign. One yeah. is the book we mentioned earlier, except for Palestine, uh, which is co-authored by Marco Hill and Mitchell Plitnik. One of the points they made in that book that I thought was important for me to understand as a learner is that, you know, for years there's been... Um, this painting of Palestinian people uh, as violent, right? Which mm -hmm. is which is also Islamophobic, which is also yes. Orientalist, right? Which yes. is also racist. All those things, yes. and so when BDS arises as a as a nonviolent protest movement, right? Yes. Suddenly that is well that that's anti-Semitic or that's offensive, and I think that that's an example. We began our conversation by talking about the importance of pushing against frames that are handed to us, mm -hmm. and you know what a boycott says is exactly what you said. I'm choosing not to act as though this is fine. I'm right. choosing to, to refrain from my participating in something that is not okay, that is not normal. And I think that one of the biggest questions, um, I refer to myself as like an Amazon abstainer. Uh, so, and one of the biggest pushbacks I get is, you know, I can't really abstain from Amazon, right? Because websites that I don't even know, right? They host their servers on Amazon and, you know, they, they own all types of things that I don't even know they own. But, but part of it is what is the statement that we make when we choose yes. to stand up with other people and say, I want to try to act like this is not fine. Right. And so, it, I, you know, for people that are thinking, oh, I want to participate in BDS, but what, what if I accidentally buy something or what if I what if toilet paper becomes scarce again and then I have to buy this toilet paper and then I find out later it's owned by a company that's owned by a company that's owned by, you know, like. That that is not the point. How do we how do we make a principled because at the end of the day, right? These are multi bazillion gajillion dollar contracts that you know are little pennies. 
can make a difference, but it's, you know, it's not the Montgomery bus boycott. It's not a micro economy, but, but how do we say, this is not fine. I don't want to participate. I'm going to take opportunities to educate other people about my choice not to participate and, and think about what that means. And so um, I think that that's, you know, that's really important. And I'm also hearing just the levels of connections when we take time to learn, because, you know, we are already talking about violence against black people in Ferguson. And now we're talking about violence against Central American and Mexican people from mm-hmm. a, a, along the border also um, right. being related. So um, we are close to the hour and I want to respect mm-hmm. your time as I continue to rant enthusiastically. I'm going to ask you um, two more questions, Curry, if that's OK. Yeah. Is that cool with yeah. you? Um, yeah, absolutely. And as you're talking, uh, as you're, before you answer those questions, what I, one thing I want to do is I'm going to share my screen because you were kind enough to um, share with us some Palestinian organizations and people to follow, to learn and stay plugged in. So I'm going to, I'm going to share my screen and put those up as I ask you um, a question about um, what can we do to unlearn what we have learned, right? And so by that, I don't just mean like, you know, we didn't learn any of this history and let's go listen to podcasts and, you know, figure out what year, what happened and when, but psychologically, right. The, the normalization of a settler state, how can we start to unlearn that? And what are some of the the mental or psychological or spiritual practices that you would recommend for just shifting our worldview on this issue? Man, that is such um, an important question. And, uh, you know, the answer, it's challenging because the truth is colonization, you know, is not just this kind of event that happened once in history. Colonization happens literally every day. It's reiterated every day. And essential for it to work is um, a certain level of consent and buy-in and ideological acceptance of its values and its understandings. And so that means that we are colonized every single day. And so it's an ongoing practice, I think, um, excuse me, to decolonize. And, uh, you know, I, I so I wanna lift up one, one amazing resource um, is uh, the book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis, which she writes about a lot of things or speaks, it's the tra- mostly um, transcriptions of conversations. Uh, she speaks about a lot of things, but speaks extensively about uh, the Palestinian freedom struggle and intersections of the black freedom struggle. And this notion that it's an ongoing process, I think is extremely important. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's not like you, you, you this goes to the question too of like, that, that you asked first, you know, do I know, do I know enough to stand in solidarity? And like, there's no moment where I think we will like graduate, you know what I mean, um, with our like degree in like, and you know, be like, like free of colonization. I mean, in, until the world is free of colonization, which I believe will happen. I believe will happen in our lifetimes. Um, uh, and I believe that we should understand that it will happen and fight like it's going to happen. Um, but part of that process of fighting is a constant struggle you know, in the world and in, in our minds, uh, for real. Um, so I, I, I just want to, I'll say, though, in response to the question, um, I think a lot about uh, the, the amazing freedom fighter, Asada Shakur, who in her, who, who her, her autobiography, highly recommend reading and rereading. And she talks so beautifully about solidarity and internationalism and how she came into solidarity with Puerto Rican folks and with um, folks indigenous to this place called North America, uh, and how when she found herself at first in conversation with those folks, um, she realized, you know, it was she, she felt embarrassed because she realized all of the kind of anti-Puerto Rican racism, the anti-indigenous racism that she had accepted as somebody who who grew up in this place, right? And she she talks about how she wants to be in solidarity, but to do that, like she, she's thought, I need to know these people's stories from their perspective. I need to know who their heroes are. I need to know uh, their histories. And so it's a commitment, you know what I mean? Uh, to, to learning those things. It's an ongoing commitment to ever deepening uh, our knowledge and our, and our solidarity. And I think that's part of the process, but again, it's, it's a constant process until we are free. 
you know, I, the, the writer, Kathy Park Hong, uh, was talking in an interview recently about, um, solidarity between black and Asian communities and recognizing anti-blackness and Asian communities while also, um, thinking about ways that, you know, black people can step up or understand anti-Asian violence. And she said this thing that I can't stop thinking about, which is, um, we only know what white people have told us about each other. Right. right? right. And so if we were to expand that, if, if you're white or, you know, whatever your background is in this case, we only know what what these states that none of us really believe in or are really benefiting from or that invested in we only know what they've told us about each other right and so if we know that they lie on us why would we believe the things they say about somebody else right and so so important yes 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 Just, just real quick because you know i mean and again it's important to engage with Palestine on its terms, learn its history, et cetera. And also we have to make the connection. So when you, when you, you know <laughs> that they say that our protests are violent because we're disrupting traffic or whatever, right, we're like, all being hmm. killed, right? So we've heard that about us. So when they say, oh, Palestinians are violent, you know, but the, the violence, you, you know, make the connection, make right. the connection. Right. Because they make the connection. <laughs> right. They they make the connection to the tune of many, many dollars. Um, I'm going to close with one final question um, yes. with, with deep gratitude. Actually, I'm going to say my advertisements first so that I can <laughs> keep people sucked in and they have to hear my various advertisements before they get to hear your answer to the final question. So yes. speaking of internationalism, our next Black Freedom Lecture is going to be the incredible Barbara Ransby. Uh, it's truly a brilliant scholar on the topic of Black Marxism, internationalism, and anti-fascism. If you thought anti-fascism was only for white people, you were wrong. There are Black anti-fascists. We've been out here in these streets. Um, And so Barbara is going to be talking about that. Dr. Renfield will be talking about that. Um, And that conversation will be this Thursday at 6 p.m. Central. And once again, if you don't want to remember that, you can follow us on all the socials or sign up for our newsletter at blackfreedomlectures.org slash newsletter. Um, And you can watch Barbara's lecture on this very YouTube channel. It's already up. You can watch it right now when you're done listening us. All right. Final question. Yes. Um, people really want to know specific things to do, Curry, And so they want to know what does solidarity look like right now? Um, our very first Black Freedom Lecture was uh, C. Riley Snorton. And um, Professor Snorton said, you know, we need to think about entanglement, not just solidarity, entanglement. And it is clear from this conversation that there is a lot of entanglement happening, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what does solidarity look like right now? What can people do today, tomorrow, this week, next week for the rest of their lives, knowing that, as you said, this is a constant struggle? Right. Um, Thank you for the question. And I'll just, you know, I want to acknowledge like Palestinians are telling us what we can do to be in solidarity with them. And so I know that the, um, you know, the like, uh, the, I don't know, the the different orgs and people who I I mentioned, you know, will be sent out uh, through uh, Eve's various channels uh, in this amazing lecture series. Um, so, so stay tuned to that, you know, the newsletter, um, you know, the social, et cetera. Um, I just want to shout out uh, real quick, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, um, IMEU, at the IMEU um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, a, a couple other people, Nora Erekat, um, who's an amazing, amazing Palestinian scholar, um, uh, Omar Badar, another Palestinian scholar, um, Mohammed El-Kurd, um, uh, you know, you can find all these people. And again, we'll, we'll find ways to communicate uh, to you all where, where to find them on social media. Uh, but these folks, uh, I think, I mean, of course, there's like literally, literally millions of Palestinians, you know, to, to engage with and have conversation with and who are on social media and so on. Um, these folks, uh, I, I want to shout out in particular, who I, I think, um, think who are familiar with the kind of colonial arguments and really help with the reframe. Um, and again, there's so, so many more. So, um, so, so yeah, get plugged in, you'll, you'll see more. But what folks are saying is, I mean, you know, again, there's a Palestinian general strike tomorrow, right? Um, and they're asking for solidarity protests all around the world. So folks go to a protest uh, uh, for real is one way. BDS was, a, was developed by Palestinians, a Palestinian call from Palestine saying, find out the ways, I mean, you, you, you named it entanglement, find out the ways that you and your community are entangled in Israeli apartheid and disrupt it by boycotting and divesting and and calling on uh, the the governments against the, again, the US government for for those of us here who give privileged status 
to the administrators of Israeli um, uh, apartheid. So there are so many ways that we are we are uh, connected with this, and that we can be invested in Palestinian uh, uh, freedom. Um, so so that's it. I think taking a lead from from Palestinian folks, uh, and yeah, committing to, to to that learning too. That's part of the process, you know, and, and it helps us disrupt. Uh, and 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 to be honest, you know, I mean, look, it's all about. A, a free Palestine because this has to this this kind of violence has to end. Palestinians who are who are displaced. I mean, a largely a refugee population displaced all around the world, even within Palestine, are displaced from their homes in a way that continues to happen. That, that needs to end. Palestinians need to, to, to be able to return home and thrive um, beyond the ways that they're already thriving and have already produced such richness and so on. And also, I promise you that. For what it's worth, if you engage with the Palestinian freedom struggle, I guarantee you, you will learn about your own freedom struggle. You'll learn about yourself, your own conditions. It will enhance any other freedom struggle that you are also invested in. And again, that's not accidental. It is because we really are bound together. You know what I mean? That that isn't that isn't rhetorical. Um, uh, and uh, there's so many ways that that our freedom is bound up with those of, that of Palestinians. But there's also so many ways in which the Palestinian freedom struggle is so heroic. It is such an education. Learning about it certainly changed my life. I have tremendous gratitude to the Palestinian freedom struggle. So I encourage you um, to engage again for Palestinian freedom and also truthfully for a liberated world, the freedom of us all. Well, you know what's so powerful about that, Karee, is that the 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 technologies, the strategies, the organizing that we see people use to fight for freedom around the world. They, we invent new things with every generation, but we learn from previous generations, right? And so the BDS movement, as you said, going back to the, the global boycott to end apartheid in South Africa, going back to the civil rights movement boycotts, right? And go, going this, uh, like uh, Cesar Chavez, like people yes, all over the yes, world yes, have, have right used on. these things. Yes. And so when we take the time to learn about them, we are learning about each other's histories. And we are also resisting being conscripted into something that we didn't choose and that most of us, right. uh, it's not working out that great for a lot of people. And so um, I really want to say thank you so very much um, for your time. Specifically, um, this is, you know, I'll just say publicly, this is something I asked you to do very last minute. We have never met before. And so I was in the streets like, who has Karee's email? Who could, you know? Um, so I, I really appreciate you um, and am really grateful for your time. And for everybody who's watching, thank you so much for taking this step to come and be in community together to say, I actually don't know everything about this and that's okay. And I recognize the process of my learning as a necessary step to step up and, and do what needs to be done for myself and for the people around me as a member of, of a global community. So I'm really grateful to all of you tuning in with us um, this evening. Uh, please join us again and um, follow us specifically right after we get off. I'll make sure everybody on uh, Black Freedom Lectures on our Instagram that we reshare all the things that that you shared with us tonight. Um, thank you so much, Karee. And last thing, where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do? Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter. Um, if you search for you, you, you know my name. If you are watching this you can <laughs> on, on Twitter, you can find me there. Um, and please, please, please stay in touch. And what an absolute honor to have this conversation um, and to be in solidarity with the Palestinian freedom struggle. What an absolute honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Serious gratitude for for doing this. Serious gratitude to our interpreter, Bar. I know yes, I the, go, the legend. Thank you. But, but serious gratitude to, to making this space uh, for this urgent, urgent conversation.